If you have your Bibles, why don't you open with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And tonight we're in Ecclesiastes 12, 9 to 14. Um, this is our final message in this book. I hope that it's been challenging for you. I hope it's been a fruitful study. Um, as was mentioned in the announcements, next week we're going to have our Q&A. Uh, and so submit your questions. Um, and then after that, when we come back, we're going to start uh, a topical series in which we're going to tackle one question per week. So it's going to, I guess you can think of it as a continuation of our Q&A, but we're going to tackle one question per week in the form of a sermon, um, questions that are pertinent to you guys as college students, but also as Christians. The, uh, like a couple of the questions are like, how do I discern God's will? Um, or how do I have a real devotional life? Things, questions like that, that we think, and we hope that will be profitable for you. Um, and so that's what's coming next. But for tonight, we're in Ecclesiastes 12, 9 to 14. And this passage is actually the epilogue of the book. Okay, an epilogue is kind of like a conclusion. Um, an epilogue is separate from, but it's attached to the end of the main body to comment and to bring closure and all that's been said. That's the, the purpose of an epilogue. And I think that's exactly what we have here uh, in verses 9 to 14. Okay, so let's read our passage and then I'll pray and then we'll jump into it. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 to 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like a goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Uh, this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, just look now into this final section of uh, this book of Ecclesiastes, we have gain so much wisdom from it. And uh, we, we ask now that you would give us uh, just minds and, and ears and hearts to understand and to uh, really heed the words of that you want to share with us tonight. Uh, that uh, these clear words of just what is our duty? What is this life all about? How have you called us to live? Um, you've answered for us in this passage. And so help us to pay attention, <clears throat> help us to really listen um, and to apply this to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you remember back to the previous section, uh, so chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 8, uh, we, we really felt the preacher's urgent exhortation to us. In verse 1, he says, to remember your creator in the days of your youth. Right. And when we, uh, the following verses, there was all of this imagery of old age. Um, he calls it the evil days that is coming upon you. So you have the pictures of like the silver cord is snapped. The golden bowl is broken. The pitcher is shattered at the fountain, the wheel broken at the cistern. And all these pictures of just growing old and losing our abilities and, um, and aging. And he says, one day we grow old and we grow old. And then one day in verse seven, the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. And then, uh, Verse 8 of chapter 12, this very familiar phrase, he says, vanity of vanities, 
says the preacher, all is vanity. Uh, if, if you remember, that's exactly how the preacher started the book, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 2. And so when you look at the very beginning, you look at chapter 12, verse 8, you have these like perfect bookends, right? You have this thesis statement that describes life under the sun. He started with this and he ended with this. And he answers this question all throughout the book that we mentioned at the very beginning. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And the answer that we've seen uh, very clearly is nothing, right? Man gains nothing in this world. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Verse 8 there of chapter 12, and the preacher could have ended it just right there. And it would have worked like in terms of literature or, or literary device. Like you started with it, you ended with it, just close the book. There's Ecclesiastes, but that's not what he does. And we get this epilogue here in verses 9 to 14. And I want you to notice in this section that we've moved from the preacher uh, speaking in first person to him being spoken about in third person, right? Uh, you're, you're looking at the preacher. It's not just the preacher speaking anymore. It's like he puts his pen down. He kind of takes a step back and he looks at all that he's written as a whole. And a lot of commentators, they actually try to make sense of this by seeing that uh, an editor, so someone other than a preacher, that an editor came in afterwards and they added this section uh, to make Ecclesiastes not so weird. Right? Because Ecclesiastes is too depressing, it's too unorthodox, and so they had to, they had to add this section at the end um, to make it like happier, right? to make it more biblical. But I don't think that's the case, because what we see here in these verses is consistent with what we've read so far. It's, it's not really anything new. And so why do we get these verses? Why does the preacher add this epilogue here at the end? Well, I think this passage touches on a couple of um, temptations, a couple of responses that we can have after reading and studying Ecclesiastes. The first, I think, is probably true of how we're tempted to respond to just the Bible in general. And that is our temptation to simply move on. Um, I, I think of the picture in James 1, 22 to 25, where James uh, tells us about this man who just looks at himself intently in the mirror and he just goes away. And it, as he says, at once he forgets what he was like. Um, or if you want to use a more Ecclesiastes-like illustration, it would be like going to a funeral, sitting there and taking a long, hard look at death. But then you just hop in your car, you go home, and then you just go on with life as usual. And so these final verses of Ecclesiastes, they show us the value of all that we've just heard, the value of the words that we have just read. He's trying to show us that this is wisdom that we aren't meant to just like put aside this is wisdom that we ought to revisit often, that we need to hear often to give us a proper perspective on life, especially as young people. It asks us the question, okay, what are you going to do with, uh, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to take away from all that you just read? And second, I think this, this response is more specific to Ecclesiastes. As much as we've learned about the enigmatic and frustrating nature of life under the sun, this final section, this epilogue, reminds us that life under the sun is not all that there is. Life under the sun is not all that there is. Remember, we said, we, we very carefully defined that word vanity, right? It shows up in 12.8, back in uh, chapter 1, verse 2. And we said that that word vanity, it doesn't mean that life is utterly meaningless. 
that, that everything is pointless, right? There's no purpose to anything. Quite the opposite, actually. Uh, we said that that word vanity, think of your breath on a cold day. Now, you cannot master it. You cannot grab onto it or manipulate it. You can't hold onto it and put it into your, put it into your pocket because it's your breath, right? It's vapor. You can't find permanent gain or satisfaction because it's gone in an instant. But we learned that the reality of death <clears throat> and the fact that life under the sun still falls under the authority and rule of God means that everything that we do is meaningful, not meaningless. And in fact, we're going to see even more in our passage that everything we do is meaningful because it's brought into judgment in the end. At the very beginning, I told you that the preacher is taking us somewhere, right? Uh, how do we make sense of this life under the sun? And, that, and our human tendency, as you may have been convicted about throughout our study, is to think that we can somehow figure it all out, right? We just like work harder, we be smarter, you get the right answers, you make the right decisions, you avoid the right mistakes, you make enough money, you enjoy enough pleasure, and somehow like we can master life. Somehow we can <clears throat> escape the vanity of life and find meaning and satisfaction. And, and before bringing us to this destination in our passage, along the way, it's been the preacher's goal to really make us feel the frustrations and the disappointments and, and the enigmas of life. And I hope you felt that as we've going, been going through our messages. <clears throat> but, but after all of that, what I appreciate about this epilogue is just the note of uh, clarity, the note of simplicity that it ends on. And throughout this book, we've learned there are many, many things that we don't know, that we have lots and lots of limitations. There are many things that we simply cannot change about how the world works or even how our lives play out. But amidst all of that, there are some very clear things that we must know and do. And that's what our passage teaches us. And so we'll look at this in two parts. Uh, point number one is the one thing you need to know. The one thing you need to know. So if you didn't know, one of our uh, Beacon staffers, Winston, he actually recently launched a podcast called Heard About. Um, and, and this is the description that he wrote for it. It says, it talks about the biggest moments and communications with the people who were behind that. And so he, he actually was able to do interviews with these like different journalists who broke uh, monumental news stories, such as the uh, Larry Nasser USA gymnastics scandal, um, or there's like other, uh, he talks with like different politicians or speech writers for, for presidents throughout history. And, and the compelling part of his podcast, I um, encourage you guys to, to check it out if you haven't, uh, is that you're hearing it straight from these individuals who not only have the credentials, right? You not only have these like positions where, that are very prestigious, but they also have the firsthand experience. And so they're well qualified to speak and their words carry a lot of weight. And I think that's kind of like what verses 9 and 10 is saying. It gives us this picture of what went into writing the words of Ecclesiastes. Look at verse 9. He says, besides being wise. <clears throat> so we know that the preacher um, or Solomon, he was unmatched in his wisdom. Right? It was wisdom that was specifically granted to him by God. Um, Solomon's wisdom, as we talked about, was so prominent. It was so well known that it actually prompted the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10 to travel to him and to investigate for herself. Uh, I mean, even kind of in, in popular culture, when you think about Solomon, you think about wisdom. 
I mean, even Jesus himself describes Solomon in that way in Matthew 12, 42. When you think of Solomon, you know he's wise, right? And so uh, the point is when someone with that kind of wisdom speaks, then you listen. Those were his credentials. But it wasn't just that, right? It was also his experience. At the very beginning of Ecclesiastes, the preacher set out on his experiment and he, he set out on this endeavor to answer this question, what can be gained by all the toil at which man toils under the sun? And we said uh, that question meant or rephrased is like, what is that profit? What is that surplus or achievement to show at the end of your life to justify all of your work that you put in? What, what is that thing, that trophy that is going to justify all of your effort? And on this experiment, it led him to turn to pleasure, to relationships, to sex, to money, to knowledge, power, to wisdom. Um, he says everything under the sun he turned to in an effort to answer that question. And at the end of it all, he didn't just arrive at his conclusion, right, which is nothing. You can't gain anything. But he wrote it all down and he put it into words. Look at what it says in verse 9. The preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. And so when you look at those words there in verse nine, um, he says weighing and studying and arranging, all of those words kind of communicate the similar idea of how uh, he, he slowly and he carefully and he diligently and he thoughtfully sifted through all that he observed, all that he experienced. Okay, these aren't just like, trite, generic Christian platitudes. These are things that he lived through, he experienced, he thought through, and then he wrote down. Verse 10 says that he, he sought that balance between words of delight and words of truth. Okay, so not just like what to say, but he also thought about the artistry, the beauty of how to say it. Now, I think both of those words are significant, those words delight and truth. The message of Ecclesiastes, as, as depressing as it seems, even with its honest description of life in this sin-cursed world, the message of Ecclesiastes is intended for us as words of delight. It's intended to teach us and to lead us to a life of joy. And we've talked about this already. Um, we've seen this throughout the book. For example, in Ecclesiastes 2, 24 to 25, preacher says that there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. Um, or Ecclesiastes 9, 7 to 9. It says, go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. Okay, so all throughout Ecclesiastes, he's taught, he's, he's tried to teach us to live with joy. Right, to find enjoyment in the things that we do. Everything that we have, the things that we get to enjoy, food, drink, relationships, even the experience of enjoyment itself, the preacher says those are gifts to us from the hand of God. And joy comes when we learn to accept these things as our portion, that word that he uses. When we receive God's gifts for what they are, gifts and not means to gain. Things to humbly and gratefully receive and enjoy today and not stepping stones for where we hope to be tomorrow. For example, when, when school or work becomes something that it's not intended to be, uh, if you see school or work as just like a stepping stone to that next thing in life, 
if you see this as just the source of your identity or what determines how, how uh, your worth or how valuable you are, then those things become enslaving, right? And miserable and anxiety inducing and frustrating and burdensome. But when we receive work or school for what they are, an opportunity to steward your God-given gifts and to worship him is something that is worthwhile and valuable apart from the results that it gets us. Then we can actually find school and work to be pleasurable, right? Something that we can find enjoyable. Well, along with words of delight, the preacher also sought to, to write words of truth. Right? He, he intended and he sought to write accurately about life so that we don't go through life disillusioned. And sometimes truth hurts, right? Sometimes truth is jolting. Um, the way that we describe the truth about death is that it's like the pin that bursts our bubbles. And look at how he puts it in verse 11. And he says, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So a goad is um, a long stick or a long staff. And it, at the very end of it, it had a sharp point. Or, or a nail, and it was used by shepherds or those herding animals to keep the animals on a straight path. So if uh, the cattle like went to the left, it'd be poked, right? Or it went to the right, poke. If it stopped, then you would poke it, and you, you would use this go to prod this, this animal along in the right direction. Um, he also says that his words are like nails that are firmly fixed. Um, this could be referring to that same idea of like poking and prodding, um, or it could be the picture of something like pegs for a tent. Um, you, you can think of like well-driven nails that provide a stable foundation so that this tent or this thing doesn't fall down or get blown away. He's saying that you can hang your life on these words. And I, I think we do see that picture elsewhere in scripture um, in passages like Psalm 1 or Jeremiah 17. It talks about a tree that's planted by water who, whose leaves don't fail, even with the changing seasons. Um, so for that, for that nails uh, one, it could, it could mean either one, but either way, the point is that the preacher's words are meant to get our attention. Okay. We need God's words to get us heading in the right direction. We need to hear wisdom to wake us up from our apathy and from our slumber. You see this whole illustration of goads and nails, it implies that there is another who knows better than we do. Right? That there is someone who knows the right direction to go when we are so prone to go astray. And that's what it says in verse 11. It says, they are given by one shepherd. You know, I think when he's talking about shepherd there, um, I think he's talking about God himself. That as wise as these people might be, um, these, these wisdom writers, these biblical authors, their words aren't just their own, but they actually have a divine source. They're given by one shepherd who is God himself. Now, I'm sure you guys know that the picture of a shepherd is uh, significant throughout scripture, right? Psalm 23 is an obvious example. That famous Psalm, it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, you guys know that passage or um, the Old Testament leaders of Israel, they were described as shepherds. Um, Jesus himself calls him a shepherd, himself a shepherd in John 10. Elders in the New Testament church, they're called to shepherd the flock of God. And so I, I think you guys understand what characterizes a shepherd in the Bible. A shepherd leads and tends, uh, tends to and protects the sheep. He doesn't do it arbitrarily, doesn't do it without purpose. But a shepherd does all of the, those things for the good of his sheep. 
because they don't know any better. In fact, I think it's significant that God, who is called uh, the creator, if you look just back at 12.1, he's the creator, but here he's called the one shepherd in verse 11. This is what the commentator Derek Kidner says about this. He says, the God far off is equally the God at hand, who knows and can be known, who speaks to us with man's voice, and yet with finality. I think this contrast between this kind of like quiet and humble picture of being led by one shepherd. And if you jump ahead to the next verse, verse 12 is interesting. Look at what he says in verse 12. Does my son beware of anything beyond these of making many books? There is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. You guys can memorize that verse for next time you're studying for your midterms. Uh, but of anyone, you guys like understand the, the frenetic and just like tiring busyness of making many books, right? And of much study, you know what the preacher is talking about in verse 12. But understand that the point here isn't that we should just like reject all studying. We throw away all of our books. We just don't do any intellectual activity um, because it's tiring, um, though that might be true. Rather, he is talking about our human tendency to think that we can somehow know all the answers. He's talking about our tendency to concern ourselves with what we don't know and to neglect the things that we do know. Uh, Like I mentioned, we're going to talk about one of the questions we're going to address in our next series is uh, about discerning God's will. And it's the same idea, right? Oftentimes we want to know like every scenario, every outcome, every explanation. And because we don't know those things, we, we become paralyzed, right? We don't do anything. And we like, we become paralyzed rather than faithfully listen and obey what God has said. And this, this passage reminds me of the picture of Mary and Martha in Luke 10, 38 to 42. And I think so often we can be like Martha. We busy ourselves. We make ourselves anxious and troubled about many things when we need to be more like Mary, who who Jesus says you've chosen the, the good portion by sitting at his feet and listening to him. And so I think one, uh, one implication of us being led by God, our shepherd, is that like a parent, and he has lovingly and he has wisely determined what we need to know and what we don't need to know. I mean, that's what verses 9 and 10 say, right, that the preacher did in putting this together, that he thought through, like, what needs to be included in this book. And that's what verse 12 is warning against, warning us against. Don't, like make too much of books and studying, thinking you can just find the answer. In fact, one commentator, he makes the connection between um, this this phrase that's used throughout Ecclesiastes about striving after wind. Um, He uses that in in chapter one, verse 14. Uh, He says, all is vanity and a striving after wind. He makes the connection between that word striving and this idea of shepherd here in verse 11. But another way to understand that word striving is the word shepherding. And so that picture is like, we try to harness the wind. We try to control it. We try to shepherd the wind in our own lives and the things that happen to us. The reality that we've seen throughout Ecclesiastes is we can't. And so a life well-lived in this world is to entrust ourselves to God as our shepherd, rather than trying to shepherd the wind and shepherd our own lives. And so two application points before we move on. Um, First, If God's words are like goads, if they are things that are meant to prick us and prod us in the right direction, if they're things that sometimes are meant to hurt us, right, for our good, 
then let me ask you, where has God's word overruled your own way of thinking? And when is the last time that you humbly submitted to what the Bible says, even when you didn't like it? I mean, of course, it is easier to, to digest and accept the word of God when it agrees with what you already believe, right? But, but that's just convenience. But what about when it doesn't? What about when it goes against what you want to do and what you believe? What do you do then? Now, that's not convenience. That's obedience, right? Allowing God's word to overrule your own way of thinking. And then second, how do you see yourself in relation to God's word? How do you see yourself in relation to God's word? Do you put yourself over God's word? Right? Do, you, do you see yourself as like, oh, I'm the one who gets to poke into Prada what it says. I'm the one who gets to like analyze it and determine what I like rather than the other way around. Or do you see God's word as simply like an activity that you know that you ought to do? Like, oh, this is something I, I should be re- like, this is something I should be doing as a Christian, just this activity. Or from this passage, do you see yourself as a child dependent on your parents' instruction? And that's what he says in verse 12, my son, right? Um, beware of making anything beyond these. When you read, do you see it as you being led by God, the one shepherd? I mean, we mentioned Psalm 23 earlier. Uh, like read that Psalm. Okay. It says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You know, we read that and we often think of Psalm 23 in light of like life circumstances, right? Like the hard parts of life that we go through. We, we think about uh, trials and suffering and we read like the valley of the shadow of death. And all of that is true. But let me encourage you to think about it this way. Can you see your time in God's word as him fulfilling Psalm 23 in your life? Right, like as you're reading, this is God shepherding you. This is Him leading you in paths of righteousness, making you lie down in green pastures, leading you beside still waters, making sure that goodness and mercy follow you the days of your life as you read and you listen to His wisdom. I mean, you can even apply that to listening to sermons. Okay, a sermon, to be clear, is not a lecture. I know it sometimes seems that way. A sermon is meeting with God and being shepherded by His wisdom through His word. And do you see God's word and listening to his wisdom in that way? Or how about this? Do you see yourself as a learner or a student or a reader of God's word? Uh, maybe you're like, well, I'm, you know, I'm not really much of a reader. I, I've tried, but I'm just like, I don't like to read. Well, listen, scripture gives you that identity. Right? You don't give yourself that identity. Scripture describes you as a reader of God's word. And so how are you going to live out that identity? And that takes time, effort, work, research. But I hope it's encouraging for you to know that verse 12, it says you don't need to be an expert on every single subject, right? But do you, are you a student of God's word? Um, I like how John Wesley put it. He said, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. So the one thing we need to know is the wisdom from God given to us uh, through words, right? words that are found in scripture, in his word. Second point is this, the one thing you need to do. The one thing you need to do. Uh, verse 13. 
says the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Uh, So when you read verse 13, I want you to feel the comprehensiveness of the preacher's statement. Okay, he says the end of the matter, all has been heard. This is the whole duty of man. Um, In fact, that last one, this is the whole duty of man. It's literally translated the whole of man. Okay, so that word duty isn't even there. It's not just like responsibility or this obligation, but it, it describes your essence, that this is what man was created for. And what is it specifically? Woe says that you were created, your whole duty is to fear God and keep his commandments. To fear God and keep his commandments. We have already touched on um, what it means to fear God because it's come up repeatedly throughout the book. Uh, specifically six times he's already mentioned this. Um, for example, Ecclesiastes 3.14 says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Or Ecclesiastes 7.18, it is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, uh, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Um, Ecclesiastes 8.12-13, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. And so all throughout Ecclesiastes, we've seen this call to fear God. And we've said that to fear God is not, it's not mostly about like uh, terror or, or being afraid or, or just like trembling, but he's talking about this reverence and awe. He's talking about having a serious consideration of God in all things, to have this desire to please him and to delight him. Uh, to fear him is to recognize who God is and to respond appropriately. Charles Bridges, he puts it like this. He says that to fear God is that, that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. And so uh, realize it's connected to the second one, right? So if you fear God, you will keep his commandments. Those things are related. Uh, Jesus says something similar in John 14, 15, where he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so Uh, But you can realize this passage says that your whole duty, the most important thing that you need to do in this life is to fear and to keep. That is your mission statement. That is your chief aim in all that you do. Fear God, keep his commandments. I think that's challenging. That's convicting for us because we tend to uh, compartmentalize our life, don't we? Like many of us, you are really busy. Uh, you have lots of responsibilities. You have, you're juggling a lot of different things on your plate. Uh, I mean, think about it. Just like in your own life, t- take inventory with me right now. Like what are the things that you need to get done? What are the duties, the responsibilities that you need to attend to? I mean, maybe not even just like on an individual level, but when you think about life, when you think about the world and society, like what are the things that need to happen? What are the problems that need to get fixed? Maybe you think of like, covid or like politics or you think about your own career or family or just all of these goals things responsibilities and what the preacher says here is that every duty every responsibility is toward god first and foremost right your whole duty is to fear god and keep his commandments so so what is the most important thing for you when it comes to your academics it's to fear and to keep What is the most important thing when it comes to dating to fear God and keep his commandments? When figuring out your future career path to fear God and to keep his commandments. What is the most important thing when it comes to serving at church and double ACF? Fear God, 
keep his commandments. In your free time and hanging out, uh, how do you spend your money? Fear God, keep his commandments. And how do you decide between this option or that option? God says the most important thing is fear me, keep my commandments. What about when you're suffering, when life is hard? So your whole duty is to fear him and to keep his commandments. And I think this is encouraging for us because what he's saying is you you do that, you commit yourself to that. And even in the face of life's frustrations, even in the face of life's randomness and all of these unanswered questions, if you do that, you cannot go wrong. Right? You'll be okay. Things will be good because that is your whole duty. That is what God has created you to do. Now, there's a reason for that. Verse 14 says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So like we said earlier, um, this epilogue is important because it reminds us that life under the sun is not all that there is. That one day, verse 14 says that God will bring every deed into judgment, that everything will be laid bare before God who knows every secret that you've ever hidden, whether good or evil. And what we did, how we did it, why we did it, all of those things will have eternal significance. And we learned in Ecclesiastes that we ought to enjoy life because death is coming, right? Uh, So enjoy life while you have it. But this passage teaches, teaches us that we also ought to fear God because judgment is coming. And so Beacon, we need to be prepared. And I feel like we've all had um, a dream about being unprepared for something really significant. Uh, Maybe for you, it was like a job interview, or I feel like it's always like related to public speaking. Uh, Like I I dreamed about having to preach a sermon that I hadn't prepared before, Um, but that's just me. But maybe it actually happened in real life for you. Like, you, you know, you had to do something that you're just totally unprepared for. And, and like, it's terrifying, right? It's just like, it's so embarrassing. Uh, it's, it's scary. Um, and here, the, the preacher is, is trying to help us avoid that uh, by, from happening with the most important event in the universe. That, that's speci- specifically standing before God and having to give an account of our lives to him. Are you prepared for that day? Now, how do we rightly think about God's judgment? Um, I know that this is not something that we maybe think about often, um, but I want you to realize just a couple things here. Realize first that as New Testament believers, that we know more than the preacher did. Okay, for Solomon here, or the preacher, he didn't know um, at least in full about Jesus. He didn't know about the cross. He didn't know about like uh, his death and resurrection, about the gospel. Uh, I would say he, he, he did have this understanding of God's judgment. He did know he had this uh, eschatological hope that God would make all things right in the end, but he didn't know all that we know. And so I think that changes how we have to under, understand this. And so for us as believers, like, how do we think about this? Well, for us, we know that on the cross, uh, Jesus Christ, he took the judgment that we deserved, right? That, that we are as believers, uh, we, if we've trusted in him, we are dressed in Christ's perfect life. And that when we stand before God, we are deemed righteous um, because when God looks at us, he's going to see the righteousness of his son. And that is what it's coming for us uh, when we stand before the judgment of God. But I think God's judgment is still instructive for us as believers, even if that's true. Because we can be grateful that we don't get what we deserve when we stand before God, who is the just judge. And yet we can also be grieved 
by all the times that we displease God and all the times that we sinned against him, because not only did Jesus die for them, right? And we're forgiven, but he had to die for them. Does that make sense? That those sins, all of those times that we displeased him, those sins put him on the cross. And so the judgment of God teaches us to hate our sin more, knowing what our sins did uh, to Jesus, right? That he took judgment in our place. I think that's, that's at least helpful in, in uh, helping us to think about this as believers. Um, but, but I think if we talk about judgment and, and only focus on punishment here, I think that's what often comes to mind. But if we only focus on punishment, I think we're not getting the preacher's entire point. And notice that he says every deed, whether good or evil. Okay, so it's not just condemnation, but also commendation. I think of the words of the master in the parable of the talents where the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, do you long to hear those words because we want to live a life that pleases God? And even more than that, I want you to think back to what the preacher has already told us about this life. Um, In Ecclesiastes 4.1, the preacher, he looks around at the world and he says, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. And when you read that verse, it talks about the tears of the oppressed and no one to comfort them. Like what are the specific pictures or what are the specific instances of oppression and injustice that flood your mind? Maybe it's stories that you've heard about in the news. Maybe it's events in your own life or in the lives of loved ones. Do you feel deeply the extent and the heartache of suffering and brokenness in this world? There there are the tears of the oppressed and no one to comfort them. And maybe you've experienced that. Like sometimes there's just no immediate, no like quick fix answers for some things in this life. There's nothing that you can say sometimes to make things more okay, more palatable. Because when you feel that burden of the vanity of this life, East of Eden, then you begin to understand how verse 14 is a good thing, that God will bring everything into judgment, that there's nothing that he doesn't see, that life under the sun is not the end of the story, that those who in chapter four have no one to comfort them right now, that in the end, they will be comforted and they will be vindicated by God himself. And that future reality, that end of the story, that transforms how we live today. It injects purpose and meaning and joy into every single thing that we do, whether big or small, whether seen or unseen. And even though you can't control this life, even though you can't guarantee outcomes, what you do in this life right now matters because you live your life, Coram Deo, you live your life before the face of God. And so the preacher says, fear him and keep his commandments. Your life, even in a world that is marked by vanity, your life is an opportunity to worship him. Let's bring this to a close. J.A. Packer, um, he, he summarized the five wisdom books in the Old Testament in this way. He said, the Psalms teach us how to worship. The Proverbs teach us how to behave. Job, how to suffer. Song of Songs, how to love. And Ecclesiastes, which he called his favorite book, teaches us us how to live, how to live. And how specifically does Ecclesiastes teach us to live? Well, he says, with realism and reverence, with humility and restraint, coolly and contentedly in wisdom and in joy. Begin, that is the kind of life that I hope Ecclesiastes teaches you to live. 
I hope that our time in this book has discipled you, um, even though you're young, to be people of depth, to people, to be people who have this like mature and realistic perspective of what life is like in this world, this side of eternity. I hope it has discipled you to be people who are unafraid of putting down your distractions and taking a long, hard look at the reality of death and our limitations and letting those things train you to be humble and teachable. And especially from our passage tonight, at the same time, I hope that the preacher's words teach you to be people of conviction and clarity and simplicity. Um, On May 20th, 2000, John Piper He preached a message to thousands of college students, and his message was titled Boasting Only in the Cross. Uh, And it's it's become kind of this like really well-known legendary sermon. It's really crazy. You can find it on YouTube. I encourage you to watch it. It's it's like literally thousands of college students. It's like a whole field of just like heads. It it looks like a music festival almost. Um, But the CrossCon, which is the, the missions conference, that, was, that we just had this in December, it was in large part based on Piper's words in this sermon. He's preaching from Galatians 6.14, but I think Piper's words are relevant for our passage as well. And this is how he started that sermon. And maybe you've heard this before. He said, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have been, or not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries and into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ or EQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. Again, that is my hope for all of you guys. Now, I, like, I look at you guys and I know that you are, you are very, very intelligent. You're, you're smart. Like You know your stuff. You do well in school but I hope that you would grow to be wise and that you would have, you would adopt this proper perspective on life as given to us by the preacher in Ecclesiastes, that you would learn to humbly embrace your limitations. You would understand that to be wise is not to know everything. It is to know the right things. It is to be committed to some very clear and some very simple truths to learn from the words of God, our shepherd, to fear him and keep his commandments. That is your whole duty. That's the most important thing that you can do in every area of your life. And if you do that, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful and humbled that you are the God who has spoken to us. Um, in a world where there is simply so much we don't know, um, you have not left us on our own. You have given us your word, uh, wisdom written down for us through the ages, preserved for us, um, truths that are understandable and, and that uh, are goads for us that get us in the right direction, that wake us up from our slumber, that tell us what we need to hear for our good. Uh, We thank you that you do that, not just as our creator, 
but as our shepherd. And you've not left us um, to figure this life on our own. And God, uh, you have given us a very clear commandment, a very clear commitment to fear you and to keep your commandments. And so I do pray for all of us in Beacon that uh, we would really be people who have that conviction and that that would be the most important thing for us. That would be our greatest desire in, in everything that we do, in all of the responsibilities that are on our plates, in every area of our life, that that would be our greatest desire. And so God, teach us um, by your spirit, teach us this wisdom. We're thankful uh, for this book. We're thankful for our time in it. Uh, we ask that you would help us to apply it in our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.